Many people struggle with assurance of salvation, but is that a bad thing? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. In my experience in churches, that there's a lot of people that are struggling with assurance of salvation, but it rarely gets discussed. People don't want to talk about it. People think that other people aren't struggling with assurance of salvation or that it's weird that you're just supposed to have confidence that, that you know who God is and that you know that you're saved. But what does the Bible really say about assurance of salvation? I mean, one of the reasons that it seems like it's such a hard problem is because when you look at somebody next to you, you think, "I well, I don't really know their state before God in a sense, but they seem to be okay. But over here, I'm having to, I'm having to wrestle with the flesh. You know, I sin occasionally. Maybe I sin a lot. Maybe I've got certain sins that I can't get over, but I still sin. And I wonder if I'm really saved. I don't see other people around me sinning in these kinds of ways, or maybe I see people around me sinning in these kinds of ways, and they they seem like they're okay with God, but I'm feeling guilt about it, and so. I don't really know how to deal with it. I don't know who I can go to. My pastor doesn't seem to be interested in handling this or doesn't have good answers for me for answering the question of, well, how do I know if I'm saved? It's really taking that question of, I don't know if, I don't know if Charles is saved because I can't see Charles's heart the way God sees his heart. But then just turning that inward and saying, well, I can see my heart and I see things in there that I don't know how to deal with. And, I mean, the the answer to that really is, we'll start with the Bible. Just see what does the Bible say about, if you will, a self-evaluation. I think the, the first thing to recognize is that the Bible doesn't say just sit on your laurels and be sure that you're saved. That's just not the teaching of Scripture. But I do think that's the teaching of a lot of evangelical churches. You go to the pastor, and the pastor says, well, look, you were baptized. You know you're saved. And that's not that's not the attitude of the Bible towards it. The attitude of the Bible is much better summed up in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but how much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And I think we think that the Christian life should have no fear and trembling in it. Instead of going, no, if you're saved, it's a really important thing to know. And it's reasonable. And that word trembling there literally means to tremble. It's not just that we sit back and we go, I'm fine with God. I made a profession of faith. I've prayed a prayer. I. That's not how God says we're supposed to treat our salvation. And some of this really comes fundamentally down to the way you view faith. And because part of it is, is because we've we've separated faith and reason. We've made faith and reason as if they have nothing to do with one another. We make it so that in this instance that your faith has to be like almost blind faith, that once you've declared yourself to be saved, once you've said that, you're, that you believe in God, that from that point on, if you ever say anything different, then all of a sudden, your fa- you know what I mean, that your faith has to be, I've, I said I did, and now what are you saying? And there's this part of it where God really does give us things that we can actually look at and we can think about. Like, I mean, that verse, there's no way to work out your faith in fear and trembling, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, if there's nothing for you to think about, if there's nothing for you to consider. And so clearly there are things. And so your faith, 
your faith can't be this blind thing. It can't be this thing that's divorced from everything else in the world. And what we, what the modern church tends to do is to go, I said this, so therefore it's true. Right. And we just need to recognize God is the only one that gets to speak, and the world conforms to what God says. The rest of us speak, and the world doesn't conform to us. But we have like this godlike attitude that somebody said they're saved, so that means they're saved. That is not true. There's four kinds of people in the world. There's people who aren't saved, and they know it. There's people who are saved, and they know it. Both those categories, their, their view of themselves and, their, and the reality align with each other. And then you get to the two harder categories. There's the people who are saved, and they don't know it. They don't have that assurance of salvation. And there are people in that situation. The modern church tends to discount that and say that there aren't people in that situation. But that's not the historical view of the church at all. The historical view of the church that assurance of salvation is a blessing that God gives to mature believers. It's not guaranteed. It's not promised. It's, it's a blessing that he gives to some believers. And then the last category, which is the dangerous category, which is scripturally the category that we should expect a lot of people to fall into. Based on the parable of the ten virgins, half the people fall into this. That you have people who are, who are not saved, that are absolutely confident they believe that they're saved. And the church wants to act like those people don't exist. But in the parable of the ten virgins, when the bridegroom comes to the virgins, five of them have oil and five do not. The five who do not, they're locked out. They do not. They are not at the wedding. And that's the picture of people who are sure they're saved, but yet they aren't saved. And they still at some level know it. But if you don't say we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, you let a whole bunch of people sit in the church that are, and I think that the churches are filled with people like this, that that. They are confident that they're saved. They have wavering confidence, but they're not really saved. And the church isn't saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's saying, you pray to prayer. You walk an aisle. You, you, know, you come to church every week. Whatever they use as this checklist to say you're fine with God. And that's not how Scripture deals with it. I because think- you know, vast amounts of Scripture are directed at those people who are confident that they're right with God when they're not. You know, you have all the prophets and then one of the main things for the prophets is repent because you think you think you're walking with God, in fact you're far from him, in fact you're on the path to destruction. You know, the gospels, the New Testament, you know, that's that's Christ coming to the Jews who thought they were right with God and then they end up crucifying the Christ. So, you know, it's just a theme that's running all through all through scripture. Right. Ever since the giving of the law the rest of scripture. This is a major theme. And even the giving of the law, when they say we will do everything that you commanded us to do, Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments. They immediately reject God as God. And so this idea that we're the people of God, when you're not the people of God, it's the category that we should expect to be a very large category. And when you talk about somebody who's actually wrestling with assurance of salvation, whether it's public or just an internal struggle that they're dealing with, then I think that a, a diagnosis of that situation in, in, the evangelical, in the evangelical church is helpful. The way I would see this breaking down is that you have a church that says, 
we hold to the doctrine of once saved, always saved. You can't lose your salvation, which we would agree is is a biblical, biblical doctrine. Idea. Maybe not appealing to the same verses, but but it's a biblical idea. And then you have so you've got that doctrine, but then you have a small gospel. You have a gospel that says God saves you, but doesn't actually change you, that the Holy Spirit's not actually acting in your life. You did something at some point that got you saved. You prayed a prayer, something like that. So you're saved, and now that you've done that, you can't lose your salvation. But the problem is, is a lot of people are in that position where they recognize through conviction, guilt, whatever, they recognize that something is not right with that gospel step that whatever happened there was actually too small, that they're not actually changed, but they're being told, oh, you're saved and you can't ever lose that salvation. Instead of saying, hey, let's go back to step one and say, hey, you've got this guilt, you've got this conviction, you've got sin that's still in your life. Are you really sure you're saved? Are you wrestling, like Paul says, with fear and trembling to make sure, work out your salvation? And Paul gives pretty significant warnings about the idea of just assuming you're in the category that you believe you're saved and that you that you're actually saved. Right in in First Corinthians nine twenty four through twenty seven, it says, "Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown." Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul's even saying, I mean, this is Paul. And this is, this is not early. This is after he has done mission trips. This is after he has, you know, <laughs> this is after many things have happened to him. Where he's been in the Philippian jail, he's you know he's been stoned and left for dead, and he's writing and saying, with all those things, I need to be working on my salvation with fear and trembling. I shouldn't just go. Yes, everybody knows on the road to Damascus, I saw Christ and I was saved. He has a lot better testimony than anyone, and he's saying, I need to make sure I'm running the race, lest I find that I fall short and I'm not qualified. And so that's so contrary to what's being taught in most evangelical churches, where you look at Paul, and Paul's testimony is better than anybody I've ever met, but yet he's still saying, I should make sure I'm not in the category that I think I say I'm saved, but I'm not really saved. I mean, when you talk about Paul, I think it's, you know, put some barriers around or some framework around it. Paul's not saying that he's in the Christian race, and he has no idea Am I even? Do I have any relationship with God at all? Do I have any? Is is you know he's not, and he's also not saying every single moment of every waking day. I am absolutely one hundred percent sure that I know that I am saved. And what he's saying is, is he's. I mean, those things are they're they're pointing out something like you said earlier is God is the author of salvation, and we have to recognize because we've all been wrong. We've all met, we've all thought things and realized we were wrong. We've all said things and been wrong that we should not have faith in ourselves. We should not. Our faith cannot be in ourselves. And because faith isn't separated from reason, and because God has said there will be evidences in your life of salvation, that means there are things. Paul's saying, I look at those things. I look at them and I say, Do I see my in myself the work of God? Do I see the Holy Spirit working in my life? 
do I see my walk continuing? Or is it that I saw it in the past and I don't see it anymore? I see myself going towards sin. And so it's really important when you look at Paul, Paul's not, because some people want to go, so there you're saying no one can ever know. And that's not what Paul's saying at all. But at the same time, Paul's saying there is this aspect of because your faith is in God, because God is the one doing the work, what we're called to is to keep our eye on Christ, to keep our eye on him and ask ourselves, do we see his work in our life? And are we laboring to be what he's called us to be? Because those two things will go, will will be in sync if we are in him. And they will be worked out over time if we keep our, you know, if we focus on that. And that doesn't mean that we make our assurance of salvation an idol either. It doesn't mean that we go, I have to like be making sure I'm obtaining assurance of salvation all the time. That's not what he's saying either. Maybe it would be helpful and and push back if this isn't right, but maybe it'd be helpful to think about. So salvation is a thing that happens at a point in time. Whenever you become aware of it, it is something that happens at a point in time. And I think that people think that assurance of salvation is like that, that I will get assurance of salvation at a point in time. Just and a lot think you get it at the same point in time when you actually are right. saved. <laughs> or, or that you know you have to go through a little bit of maturing in your faith and then you get that assurance. But, but it's still like, oh, okay, I, I don't have assurance of salvation. I need to get that assurance of salvation. And then once I get it, I have it. And Paul's not saying that. Paul's saying that assurance of salvation is a process that he himself is putting himself through even at a point where he's in a mature ministry role. And when men say, oh, you should have assurance of salvation, they're almost always pointing to history. I've seen you going to church for these many years. You've gone to church for 30 years. Of course you're a Christian. I baptized you. Of course you're a Christian. You know, you prayed a prayer with me. Of course you're a Christian. And they're all looking back. Paul isn't looking back. He's saying the way he tells that he's still a Christian is he's still acting like a Christian. You run the race with endurance. You run the race to the end because you can fall away at any time. And he's not saying that God's going to lose you or anything like that. He's saying that don't look in the past and say, was I a Christian? Look now and say, do I see evidence of being a Christian now? Is it you know, God will maintain everybody who is saved so you can look now. You don't look back and say, therefore, I know which doesn't mean you don't see the work of sanctification in your life. There's other things that you see as a pattern in time, but you don't look back and say, I was baptized, which is what I've heard many, many times. And it also doesn't mean that you can't appeal to somebody else who could look and say, hey, I see this process of sanctification. Now, again, you, you've got to be careful how you're doing that because right. you could just be looking for validation from somebody to tell you how great you are. And um, you can even – there are people who – fall away and prove that they were never saved, that to everybody that saw them, they looked so holy and so righteous and so just, but they knew where their heart was. They knew they were using it to manipulate people so that they would be put up, they, that it wasn't about Christ. It was about putting them on the throne of God rather than God. And that can all be internal, and that still means you're not saved. And so somebody that's just not the test, external testimony isn't useful, right? Especially negative testimony. We don't want to hear the negative testimony, but that's what, that's what God says. You can't tell if somebody is saved, but you can tell if somebody isn't saved. 
because we can't see what their thought life is to know whether they're doing it for their own glory or for the glory of God. But we can go, he's an adulterer. He's not saved. He's a murderer. He's not saved. He's a liar. He's not saved. We can go and say these things, and so we can identify by people's actions things that show they don't have faith. But their actions that we see can never be sufficient to prove that they should have assurance of salvation. Right, which is something that I think people kind of mess up on all the time because they're always saying like, "Oh, you know, we know he's such a such a strong Christian, and we know, you know, we know this person, we know we know this person's in heaven." I mean, there's similar things you could say, like we see that he has a strong testimony of belief in God. He ran know. the race to the end. Is a good right? <laughs> to but, say. but because you know you have people saying those things, and then well, what if that person falls away? What did you just tell everyone else? You're just telling them that salvation isn't real and that people might fall away because you knew this person was saved, and then actually no, they weren't. I think one of the other reasons why it's so confusing to people, and like you were talking about not looking back, is even. There's a lack of precision sometimes in the language that we use with things. Because, like, when Paul's talking about salvation, Paul is talking about the ongoing work of God working, you know, that he justified you, that he regenerated your heart, that he is sanctifying you, and that that sanctification is going to continue. And so a lot of times when people say assurance of salvation, they're always looking for assurance of something that happened in the past because they think of salvation as when they professed faith. And salvation is the whole work that God is doing. It is God's complete work. And so there's this part of it. I mean, this is why he uses the picture of a man running a race is because that's all God's work. God's entire work is your salvation. And so you are being saved from sin. And that that is an ongoing thing that God is doing in your life. And so when people say, have you been saved? And we use it as shorthand to, have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Has he regenerated you? Do you believe that your sins have been put away? And do you see this? But again, because we make it a past tense thing, there's a part of where Paul is saying, understand, you are also, you are being saved, that that salvation is this ongoing thing. And it is the work of God from beginning to end. But some of this is the the language that we use causes people to think of it as a past tense thing. And some of the language should simply be changed. The right. question is, are you saved? Not have you been saved? Right. And God says, you know, that he who began a good work in you in Romans 8, he who right. began a good work in you will bring it to the end, right? He will carry you forward. He will finish what he started. And so you should be able to see it now because it is a process and so that salvation like you said it's a work of god and it is a process a process that god promises he'll do and that doesn't mean that there's times that you don't you know you don't regress backslide is a very bad word because backslide in scripture is unbelief so we use backsliding all the time it's you know in the christian church is this thing about oh this person is they have they're, they're still a christian they've just backslid that's that's not how it's used in scripture at all it's used you're apostate but these times where you're struggling with sin, these times where you don't feel the nearness to God that you do at other times, your your assurance of salvation can diminish, and that doesn't mean that you're not saved. It could be that God is sanctifying you in a way, and he's exposing sin to you so you feel further off from God because assurance of salvation isn't the goal. Salvation is the goal. And I think it's even helpful when you talk about struggling with sin. That's such a common word. Is a word that I heard a lot in college. People would talk about, oh, I struggle with this sin. And people don't actually mean the word when they say, I struggle with sin. 
Because you could say, hey, Paul genuinely struggles with sin. He's saying, I need to discipline my body. That's what it means to struggle with sin is to identify, here's the sin, here's the temptation, I need to fight it. Typically, what we mean when we say we struggle with sin is, oh, I have this sin or this temptation that I repeatedly give into and then feel bad about after the fact. That's not struggling with sin. You've used a, a word that is not actually, you're not fighting it. You're not beating it up. You're not killing it. You're letting it live and then just feeling bad that it's in the living room. I think that's actually a really important point because people will often use as a means of assuring themselves of salvation is that after they sin, they feel bad. I mean, and I remember years ago, I, I mean, I remember it shocking me to the point because I grew up with this view. I was watching, I was uh I think it was a clip of a late night. There was a guy, it was uh, Matthew Perry, who was one of the friends, people who was on fr- the TV show Friends. And he was talking about how he was at his house and he was doing, he was watching something that he shouldn't watch. And he said, and he said, and he, and he said this thing, he goes, you know how it is after you've watched it, and you've done it, and then you're done and you don't want to see it anymore. And he's like, and, and it was really interesting language because basically he said, I mean, and, and what he's saying is, is he's saying like a person who overeats. When you get full, you don't want to eat anymore. When the person who gets angry satisfies their anger, they're not angry anymore. When the person, and when all of these sins, when you've sated your sin, there's a part of it where food disgusts you now. When you've when you've satisfied your lust, more lust, oh, I don't want lust. I don't want more lust. And it's very easy to go, this is me feeling grief over my sin when all you're doing is behaving like a sinner. And I think that's a really important distinction because that is not an evidence of a, that is not something that shows you that you have anything related to salvation. You are just acting like a person does when they've satisfied their lust. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, there's probably plenty of people who have killed, you know, murdered someone and they feel incredibly guilty. Right. You know, have have, have we felt as guilty as someone who just murdered someone? Perhaps not. And now I mean, we make now that in a judicial sense a, a evidence of repentance. You know what I mean? And, and, and so we've, we have formalized a false sense of assurance of salvation into a, into a moral sense of this shows that this person is repentance. And it's not. It's not at all. And Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians 7 where he writes and he says, look, there's worldly sorrow and there's godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is exactly what you're talking about, where you go, I murdered somebody. I feel terrible that I ended this guy's life. Isn't this horrible? And that's not godly sorrow. That's not what godly repentance looks like. Godly repentance looks like you have a zeal to clear your name. You have a zeal to vindicate yourself. You have a zeal to make people recognize that God is cleansing you and God has convicted you of this, and you're not going to continue to do it anymore. The person that has worldly sorrow, when the same worldly situation arises again, they go back to the same thing. But yet the church often goes, they have worldly sorrow. So that means that they're that they're struggling with their sin. They've overcome their sin. They haven't overcome their sin. All they've done is, like you said, satiated themselves with their sin, and so they don't want it anymore. Right. Well, that doesn't mean anything. But yet we're often in the church we're pointing people towards that and going well this shows that you're saved it does nothing of the sort it shows that you have a conscience right it shows that god has still written his law in some twisted form since the fall but he's written his law in your heart and you know it to some extent and it's enough that you accuse yourself and you recognize your guilt before god so 
I want to go to Hebrews 4 and read an extended passage because I think that in here there's there it says a lot about I mean it gives us some historical examples about how you should and should not deal with this assurance of salvation. I look at it I see okay I think this is actually a pattern for trying to achieve assurance of salvation. But here's Hebrews 4 verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So I have some ideas of how I want to use this, but but when you are working on our notes for this, you have a very different angle on it. And our, our we're not inconsistent. Right. We're just looking at it for different things. Right. And so when I saw that you wanted to bring up these verses, my first thought was he's pointing to that there's this day where they would not go into the promised land. That was the day where they hardened their hearts and they didn't hear his voice. They sent in the spies. The spies came back, and 10 out of the 12 said – We'll die if we go in there. And so they rebelled. Before that, ever since they left Mount Sinai, they were sure they were the people of God. They sure were sure that they were following God, that they were they were the chosen people of God. And then God tells them, go in. And they find out the only two, the only three that are really saved is Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. And so all the rest of them had assurance of salvation but they weren't saved. They weren't actually, they didn't have faith because when God said go, they wouldn't go. And so to me, this is a verse where he's going, look at the vast number of people that have assurance of salvation that was false. So I look at this and I look at the parts in the middle where it says, hey, some must enter that rest. So he's saying some are going to be saved. Okay, so how do I know if I'm in that group, given everything that you said about these people who, mm -hmm. who won't? And I think, I mean, there's a complex argument here, but the argument that's being made in, in Hebrews is, well, Joshua said it in that day, and you know what he wasn't talking about? Salvation wasn't going to be entering the promised land. Part of the argument of Hebrews is that everything related to the physical Israel isn't the real thing. So if Joshua was promising the actual rest on that day, they didn't get it. And how do we know we didn't that they didn't get it? Well, because later on in the Old Testament, David says the same thing. Today, you know, in, in the Psalms, David right. says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then 
it's being repeated for us a third time in Hebrews. So we have this same phrase that's showing up for us three times in Scripture. Joshua says it, David says that author of Hebrews is saying it. This is saying, this isn't something that you do on a particular day. This is a, this, I don't want to make it a mantra, but it's a pretty handy little phrase to think, okay, when I wake up today, what do I have to do? Not harden my heart. What do I have to do when I wake up tomorrow? Not harden my heart. And that's how you get towards this idea of, okay, there is this eternal rest. Because that's really what Hebrews is talking about, is the eternal rest. How do you have assurance that you get that eternal rest? That would be assurance of salvation. Well, you say, when I wake up today, I'm not going to harden my heart. So there's this this thing that you have to do yourself. But when you look at the way that this starts, I think it's really interesting that he's writing he's writing this to a group of people. And he says, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So we've been talking in a sense about how important this is for an individual to make sure that they work out their salvation and fear and trembling. But Paul is very much, I'm sorry, I say Paul, the author of Hebrews is very much saying this in a corporate context. He's looking at a congregation and saying, you all need to be looking out for each other. Let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. And then at the end, it again uses that plural language. So this is something that the church is supposed to be doing together. So it's just further emphasizing the, hey, let's not give each other false assurance of salvation. But at the same time, we're also working towards this. We're supposed to be encouraging each other. Today, don't harden your heart. Today, don't harden your heart. And, I mean, the the picture of not entering the rest then is that God told them to do it and they wouldn't obey. And so when we talk about fearing you know, us fearing lest any of you fall, fall short, it really is exhorting people to obedience. It really is exhorting people to say, are you treating God as God? Are you treating him as Lord? Because that's why he rejected them as a people. He says, I've given you good promises. Go take the promises. And they go, no. And they won't obey the commandments of God. And because of that, God says, you're not my people. So he swears in his wrath that they won't enter his rest. And so the whole picture there, that whole idea is we need to be holding each other accountable to obedience because if we want to make sure that people don't fall short, it's actually holding people accountable to obedience. We've talked before in episodes about the importance of church discipline, and this is one of the real importances of church discipline is if you won't discipline people for disobedience, then in the end, nobody in your church can have assurance of salvation. And we stopped this passage right before a famous Bible memory verse about, you know, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce even the division between soul and spirit. We all know that one, but we all know it out of context. It starts with a four. So when this verse is coming at you saying, here's what the word of God does, it's really in the context of assurance of salvation. How do you know if you're assured? Well, you know what? Go look at the Word of God because it can tell you the division between soul and spirit. It reveals the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's yeah. the end of that verse. And so it is very specifically going, it is by Scripture that you figure out whether you're saved or not. Because it's only through Scripture and the application of the Word of God that you can figure out that you're saved. And then you look at Hebrews 5, and Hebrews 5 is, hey, why aren't you guys teachers, right? And then Hebrews 6 is, you don't even know the basic fundamental doctrines. I mean, all you do is keep talking about the fundamental doctrines. And then later in Hebrews 6, 
the writer of Hebrews goes, pour out the word. You have a bunch of people that have no idea whether they're saved or not. No idea, because all you want to do is teach the basic doctrines that make nobody uncomfortable. Instead, like a field, pour water out on the field, and then the weeds will spring up, and the, the grain will spring up, and you'll find out what is what. Because, you know, the, the Word of God reveals the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's this part of it where, I mean, a lot of times people use the verse in the Old Testament where it talks about, you know, that no man can know, his, you know, the heart is deceitful and who can know it. And the answer is, in the New Testament is, is, those who are saved can know their heart. You know, I mean, they're the only ones who can truly know their heart. Someone who's not saved, they can. God can allow them to see that they're not saved. But the person who, you know, I mean, and even and the, even the unsaved can know their heart by the Word of God. Right, I mean, in the Word of God, right? Because when Jesus Christ came, in the Word of God is the picture of Christ coming. The reason they crucified him is because they were assured of salvation, and Christ destroyed their assurance of salvation. That's basically what happened. Because Christ comes and goes, this is what it actually means to obey God. And they went, we don't do anything like that. Let's kill Jesus Christ, because rather than doing what we should do, it's easier just to kill him. And that's why he was so offensive, is because he was the word of God that revealed the thoughts and intents of their hearts, so that they're plotting to kill him for, you know, let one man die so the whole nation can be saved, right? I mean, they're plotting to kill him because he says this is how the Sabbath day should be kept. And so that's the picture. I mean, Christ came as the word of God, and as the word of God, he revealed the thoughts and intents of all the hearts, and they said, we won't go into the promised land. They were just like the generation with, with Moses. He was dealing with people in two of those quadrants. He was dealing with people who thought they were safe but aren't. And he was also dealing with people who were in that fourth quadrant who aren't saved, knew they weren't saved, but they were pretending like they were. Right. You know, that's, which is basically the Sadducees, right? Right. And this is you know, Christ talks about this in Matthew seven um, about about people who seem to even be deceived about their own salvation, even on Judgment Day. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So those are people who can even, you know, we assume truly they can point to these, you know, uh, these works that they've done. And yet that, that alone is not sufficient to prove that they're Christians. You know, that last statement, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, that's, you know, that's the same thing as Hebrews 4 saying, that they wouldn't obey the commandment of God. And the person who goes, I don't want to obey the commandment of God, they're lawless. That's what it means to be lawless, where you go, I'm going to do what I want to do. And sometimes that might line up with the will of God. I like going to church. It's pleasant. Yeah, there's a lot of unbelieving children in our church that like to go to church. So does that mean they're righteous because they like to go to church? No, they just their will happens to line up with the commandments of God. It's that you actually have to desire the commandments of God. You actually have to desire to do the things that God told you to do. And I think that goes back that, – that underscores the whole thoughts and intents of the heart. Because in the end, I mean, Christ does not – God does not challenge them on the works that they said they did. Right. He does not say you did not do these things that you claim they did. He says your thoughts and intents were not for my will. And that's, you know what I mean? And that's, and so there's this part of it where when you, when you examine yourself, this is what you can know. 
you can look at it and say, not did I do X, but why did I do X? Did I actually do it for the reason that I want other people to think I did it? And it's, I mean, this is about being honest with yourself. And it's very, very easy for people to lie to themselves about why they do what they do. But I mean, it's, it, it is something that you can know and scripture makes it, scripture makes it so you can know. Right. And it's both. It's, it's what are you doing and why are you doing it? Right. Obviously. Right. But I'm just saying when you're right, it, you don't get to get up. You don't get a pass because like you said, your work lines up with what God would say he wants done. It's why you did it. Right. It's doing it, whether you're doing it for your glory or for his glory. Because when Jesus Christ says you have to die to yourself and pick up your cross and follow me, the point is, is it has to be about the glory of Christ. It can't be about your glory. If it's still about you, you haven't died to yourself. You're still trying to make a name for yourself instead of desiring for people to see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, which is a picture of what what God means when he says that you're not practicing lawlessness. You're saying, I'm doing it because God commanded me to do it because he's God and he gets to tell me what to do. Right. We talked about this recently in an episode on wolves about one of the reasons why wolves are so dangerous is because often they don't start off encouraging you to do evil things. Often they start off by it's to do a good thing, but to do it for the wrong reason, to focus on the wrong thing, to focus on yourself, to do it for your glory, to do it for pride, to do it for all these other things. And so, I mean, this is this is central to Christianity. It's central to understanding the difference between those who follow Christ and those who follow man. And when we think about assurance of salvation— one of the reasons that I think so many people in the modern church don't have much assurance of salvation is because we moved away from fear of God. Because when you think about what Paul says, where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, well, what? why do you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Because you actually fear God. And so fear of God and promoting fear in God and promoting what God does, I mean, that's that's <laughs> – that's really significant to say there's a player here that's going to cast people into hell. In Romans three ten through 18 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Without fear of God, all of a sudden you feel free to do any kind of sin. And so when we talk about having assurance of salvation and working out your assurance with fear and trembling, Implicit in that is the constraint of sin is fear of God. Now, yes, we should obey God. We should be lawful because we love God. But even a small child who loves it, you know, a two-year-old that loves their parent, they still disobey. And the reason they don't disobey is because of fear, not because of love. And we need to recognize how central that is. And what I see all the time, you know, I, as I was reading this, you know, the poison of asps was under their tongue. I think this we just need to recognize that this happens in churches all the time, that people try to mitigate the fear of God. Somebody will go, I'm starting to wonder if I'm saved. And the pastor will go, but you were baptized on this day. That's the poison of asps that is under their tongue. That's what we have to recognize that that is. 
Because what they've done in that one statement is they've removed all fear of God. They've said, don't worry about your sin. Don't worry about what you've done. Don't worry about whether what your state is before God. Because, trust me, that's no different than what Satan did in the garden. You'll be like God. Don't worry. You don't need to worry about God. He's just God. Don't worry about him. And we just need to realize how damaging that is. And I've been in plenty of churches where that's happened in. That is a really common thing. And we just need to recognize how, and, and a lot of people have been trained to do it. So I'm not like trying to attack everybody that does it. But the church has to stop it because this is the poison of asps. This is putting people to death. This is the poison that gets into their bloodstream that causes them to not fear God. Instead of going, oh, you're, you're questioning whether you're saved. You should work out your salvation with fear and trembling versus, well, I prayed a prayer with you. I know you're saved. Or, but you're such a faithful deacon. You're always here to serve the church. These are the things that pastors want to come back with. Instead of coming back with, yeah, I guess you better work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I don't see it in you, but if you're worried about it, you should be worried about it, and you should work it out. I mean, we we went through a church split years ago. Where during the church split, that you know, one of the elders was caught lying, and the reaction of a number of people in the church was to go, "If this person might not be saved, what does that mean about my salvation?" We've seen this with Robbie Zacharias. I mean, I st- we still get a lot of people, a lot of people who come in angry about the Robbie Zacharias video. If you talk to them and if you respond to them in a kind way, but you push on them and go, "Hey, you know, understand what you're, you know," they'll come in. How could you even say any of these things about Robbie? You come back and you say, "Look, these things are very well documented." The real question is: Is are you question? They'll come back, and a lot of them go, "I am absolutely reeling," because if Robbie Zacharias may not have been saved if Ravi Zacharias almost you know was not saved then what does that mean about me and the answer is is for them is you've been putting your eyes on you've been looking at a man you've been putting your eyes on the wrong thing and you need to go to Christ you need to ask yourself am I saved for the right reasons not because of anything else and I mean this is a really common response to when God God does things and causes things in people's lives that cause them to ask a question. This is a common response. Mission accomplished. You're finally saying out loud the thing that's causing you the internal turmoil. Yes. And we want to escape the eternal, the internal turmoil, and we shouldn't want to escape it. And again, this is what false prophets always say. Jeremiah 6.14, it says, They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. The last thing that you want to do for somebody that doesn't have peace with God and you can't know if they have peace with God is to say peace, peace. That's the last thing that you should do. That's what false prophets always do. They say, you're at peace. The 400 prophets, what they have, yes, just go up. You'll have victory. Isn't there anybody here that tells the truth? False prophets say peace, peace when there is no peace. You know, pastors, other people in churches need to be very careful not to be false prophets and say, oh, yeah, I know you have peace with God. Now, like Joshua was saying before, that's not saying that somebody who's who's looking at it and saying, how could God ever forgive me for having aborted my child or whatever? And you can know God can forgive, but you don't go, I know you have peace with God. You go, 
are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling now? Don't worry about what God can't forgive. Do you see evidence that he has forgiven? And I think too often the modern church just wants to go peace, peace. And, and part of my testimony for that would be you look at the total lack of effect that the church has in America today. We are not acting as salt. We are not acting as light. And I would point to that the reason that we can't affect the world around us is the church in general in America goes peace, peace when there is no peace. And you will not affect anything when you're doing that. So, you know, I've been talking about how how pastors have to be really careful not to say peace, peace when there is no peace because the church wants their pastor to be the one that gives assurance of salvation, but that's not who Scripture says should give assurance of salvation. We've talked about the Word being a means that we can discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. But there's another means that God gave, and that's the only means that's an infallible means because it requires an infallible God to do it. And so in Romans eight fifteen through 17, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So it's by the Spirit of God testifying with our spirit that we can know that we are saved. Because the Holy Spirit's job is not to testify to other people or to us about other people's spirits. We, the only person that we can have infallible assurance of salvation is ourselves because that's who the Holy Spirit testifies to about our state with him. So assurance of salvation is possible, but I think I said this at the beginning. It is a grace of God. It is the mercy of God that God convicts your heart, that God testifies with his Holy Spirit because you can't force the Holy Spirit to say that you're saved. That's not how it works. But the Holy Spirit, and you know, most confessions say that it's in you know, mature believers that he gives them this gift because it is the work of the Holy Spirit. And we don't have the right to demand the Holy Spirit give assurance of salvation. But it's the Holy Spirit that gives assurance of salvation that's infallible. And I think, and I think it's really important that you know, a lot of times people read this verse and they tie it to emotionalism. There obviously is an emotional component to this. There can be an emotional mm-hmm. comp- component to this. But look at what it says. It says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. And, I mean, this goes back to in the Old Testament whenever that you, that, you know, Moses in the tabernacle, it was outside the camp, and you had to go outside the camp and bear the reproach. This is seen in the sacrifices where the sacrifices are taken outside the camp and bearing the reproach of Christ. And so... This is not something that the evidence to you is purely this emotional response that you have within your heart. There are still real things that you can look at and say, do I suffer with Christ? Is this what I've called to you? Am I taking up my cross? And do can I actually see that I'm taking up my cross, not just do I want to listen to a praise and worship song and sing Abba Father? Right. I mean, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so if you are desiring to be lawful, you should expect not that you'll always be suffering persecution, but you should expect, the Bible says in in John 16, that I think it's John 16, that Jesus Christ talking to his disciples says, the world will hate you. They hated me, so they'll hate you. And when we're walking in obedience, when we're walking in lawfulness, 
the responses for them to hate us. That's what we should expect from the world. We should not go, oh, we'll never suffer, that we're saved, so now everything goes smoothly. No, we're saved, so we walk in righteousness, we walk in the commandments of God. So then the world hates us. And that's what we should expect. So, yes, it's not part of that testimony is the response of the world to us, that if the Holy Spirit has made us say, we have to do this because, yes, it's easier to go along with the world, but we can't because the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. That's how he testifies to it. So we walk in a way, and we we don't deny Christ before men. There's all these things that the Holy Spirit promises that he will do that that are testimonies that we're saved, the testimonies that give us assurance of salvation or that should give us assurance of salvation. And unfortunately, we look at the wrong things instead of saying that the Holy Spirit is active in our lives and that gives us assurance of salvation. Another thing that helps us testify to this is our is our belief in the reality of hell and of judgment for sin. And there's this part of it where you can see this in Mark 9, 42 through 44. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so there's a part of it where, I mean, this is tied to faith. I mean, it's tied to do you actually believe in the reality of hell? Do you actually believe that your attitude towards sin today, your attitude towards how you live your life and how you how you walk in your life is actually tied to do you believe that, that hell exists, that hell is real? This goes back to the fear of God because, I mean, it says, fear not him who can destroy the body, but here who can destroy the body and the soul and cast it into hell. And so whenever you make these things trivial, you actually, you completely doubt the judgment of God. You completely bring into question whether there is any judgment because you're saying that the person shouldn't be concerned about whether they might go to hell. You're saying they shouldn't be concerned about, they shouldn't actually care. They should just, again, have blind faith and go, these things don't matter. All that matters is that I affirm that I believe. And that's that's not what Scripture says. And when you go back to Hebrews 4, right, where it says, you know, let us fear lest any fall short, and any of you fall short. I mean, when we start to give cheap assurance, we basically said it really doesn't matter if you go and go to hell. Because it's not that big of a deal. You don't need to worry about it now. You should just be comfortable now. And so it's it's putting the things of this life at a much higher importance. And how often when people do that, right, because, you know, you're in a Bible study, say, and somebody goes, you know, I'm really struggling with salvation. And the temptation in the room is to go, oh, no, I've seen you do this and this. You shouldn't be. And I've seen that happen lots of times. And the net result is everybody in that room stops thinking about, I could go to hell. And they start going, no, I'm comfortable. And that's why they even want to say that. And so we all have to be really careful to put, to put boundaries about that. And the boundary that we put about that to not just give somebody false assurance is hell's real. And God says it's better to cut off your hand. And we Typically, it's very common for people to just want to get the uncomfortableness in that Bible study or in that discussion to get over that uncomfortableness. And the way to get over that uncomfortableness is just peace, 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 instead of going, no, hell's real. Make a joke. And it affects everybody. Make a joke. Change the subject. And 
and it denies the reality of hell. And the church needs to see the reality of hell so that people work out their salvation with fear and trembling. There's a scripture that says it's better to go in the house of mourning, right? I mean, right. I mean, it's, it's a Ecclesiastes real, 7. I mean, and as you're talking about this, I mean, when we read Romans 3, 10 through 18, in there there's a part where it says there's no one who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. And there's this part of it where what you're – I mean, just as in the church – there's this communal aspect of us working to cause ourselves to fear God. Those who are not, who don't have the fear of God, they band together to try to cause people not to have fear. Right. And when you talked about the four people, the four different groups of people, we should understand that they can exist within the church. In and and church, we should have they, an expectation that all four of the groups exist right. in your church. And so, and while you cannot make more people be saved, you can create an environment where more people who are lost and know they are lost or think they are lost are comfortable being there because the church is a good place to be. And I think people forget that. The church has real benefits. The church helps even the unsaved. But when the, when the saved forget about defending what Scripture is actually about and what salvation is actually about – you can create an environment where within the church there are people who are banding together to encourage people not to fear God. And I think that and – and if you look at the American church today, I would say that is where we are in many ways, is the number of people in churches who are not saved and who do not want to fear God and who would just want the benefits of hearing about God's goodness and God's grace and having some constraint on their sin, that they have, they have taken over the church in a lot of ways. And there are some churches where that is mostly what is there. And so when you bring these things up, of course they are going to push. To, let's, let's not think about that. Let's not talk about that. Why would we want to dwell on that? Let's just talk about God's goodness. Right. I mean, it, when you have the seeker-sensitive seeker is the opposite of make, make unbelievers uncomfortable, right. um, where someone can't just sit there and, you know, and be, and be happy in, with their current status. Right. Because in the end, you even lose what the purpose of the church is. When the church is pure, the power of the church is high, and the church affects the world. When the church is weak, all the church is good for is for the world to come into the church and have some small effect of their sin be taken away. Right. Constrain the sins that they don't want. Right. Right. It's not constrain the sins that they want. It's right. constrain the sins that they don't want. So they go to church. They're comfortable in church because they have people around them that will that – will cause them not to destroy themselves because slaves of sin destroy themselves and the church, even a bad church, puts constraints on that. The word of God has a real effect. It's really light. It really has a, a constraint on sin that affects people. And so they like that when they see that they're going to be destroyed. And even to reduce the fear of God instead of increasing it, say, you know, yeah, I'll go to church that way. I'm right with God. You know, he can't complain about me. I went to church, you know, a couple times a year, whatever it is, every week even, um, and so you're actually, whatever small fear of God you have, you're taking it away because the church is letting you just check it like a box. Which is very much what the Roman Catholic Church does. I mean, that's that's great fundraising for the Roman Catholic Church because they basically just get people to come because by coming to church, you've now assured yourself that you're saved. And so this communal aspect in a way that the the doctrine of assurance of salvation is tied to where Scripture says having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Because in the end, when the church gets the doctrine of assurance of salvation wrong, 
the church becomes something that la- that loses the power of the true power of the gospel and the true power of salvation and just becomes something that has a form of godliness. So I think it's worth it to to spend some time on just talking about ways to check to see if the, the assurance you have is really true valid assurance or if it's if it's a false assurance that you've convinced yourself is a real assurance. And there's a lot of Bible verses that that speak of this. So we could spend, you know, as Joshua said before, you know, most of the Old Testament, most of the New Testament is on this subject, so we could spend, you know, days literally reading about it. But, you know, one of the ones that I think that's very applicable to the modern church that should cause people to be afraid in the modern church is 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If you have tasted the grace of God, you love his word. If you are not lawless, you love his word. You cannot love Christ and not love the word of God. Those two are contradictions because he is the word made flesh, so you can't separate the two. And I think there's a lot of people who go to church, and the only time that they read the Word of God, the only time they hear the Word of God, is if they're sitting in church or they're in a Bible study that's conducted by the church. They're not reading it for themselves. They have no desire of it for themselves. It is, it is a public thing to give themselves assurance of salvation but that's not what's talked about here. That's not what Peter's writing. Peter's writing and saying, you'll actually want it because you'll want to go, what does God want me to do? And if you don't want to know what God wants you to do, don't think your assurance is real. And this is distinct from where it says you should desire meat and not milk. This is saying right. that you should, as a newborn babe, like you should be like a newborn babe to desire the pure milk of the word. And so just very specifically, this is – this is something that is true in all Christians at every stage of their spiritual maturity. And you go, I mean, I've been to lots of bad churches where you hear the, the quote-unquote word preached, and it's, it's not the pure milk of the word. And the people are sitting there gobbling it up. That should really concern you because this doesn't say that as newborn babes that you'll drink soy milk instead of your mother's milk. Right? I mean, it's not saying that you'll take whatever garbage that you're given. It's that you'll desire the real milk of the word, the pure milk of the word. And I think there's a lot of people who go, oh, yeah, I'm fine because I love to listen to the sermons where the sermon is actually a bunch of jokes and telling stories. Well, that's not desiring the pure milk of the word. The people who desire the pure milk of the word, they want to hear what God said and not what a pastor says. And sometimes it's because the pastor who's preaching them isn't a Christian. Right. The pastor has – he doesn't love God's word, and so he's – you know, I mean, you can tell he's not spending enough time in it to actually know it, and so that's what he's – he's that's what he's giving them. He's giving them what he loves. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you're at the point where you're saying, oh, I don't know if I really love the word of God, just see if you can ask yourself an honest question, which is always a hard thing to do, but ask yourself – what are my reasons for not wanting to read the word? And if my reasons for not wanting to read the word is what it might tell me about me, then everything we've been saying is pointing at that attitude. And I would add another one too, if you go, well, but that way I'd miss a sports game that I want to watch, or I'd miss something else in the world. 
it can be that, oh, yeah, I'll like it as long as it's in second place. Well, that's a problem, too. Those newborn babes desire it like they, they, <laughs> they want it like they want life, right? I mean, they, right. They, yeah, babies do three things. It's one of the three. It's the one that they cry about the most. If one of those signs that you have a false assurance is you don't love the Word of God, another one of those signs of false assurance is that you don't want to do the things of God. You don't want to obey God. For example, 1 John 1, 6 to 8. And we could go many places for this, but this is a really pointed one. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So again, there's just so many things here where John is asking you, look at yourself, look at yourself really honestly. Do we have fellowship with him but walk in darkness? then you're missing something. You have false assurance. Do we say we have no sin? Then you have false assurance. You know, the way you get real assurance is actually walk in the light. That will be, you know, that's a way that you can say, I have assurance. But all these other things, they're going to be pulling you away. And, you know, that, that walking in the light, right? It's really it's really practical test to see if you're walking in the light, right? I mean, do you actually behave differently if people are standing around than you do by yourself? That's walking in the light versus walking in darkness, right? And we can make it more complicated, but hypocrisy is walking in darkness. And, you know, how different are we when we're by ourselves and we're with in a group of people? I mean, you know, how differently are we with our wives and children than we are at church? I mean, these are this is what it looks like, right? I mean, it's really practical ways that you can look at. How different are you at work than you are at home? I mean, in if you're looking and saying God's always seeing me, then you're always in the light, and you don't have these great variations. I mean, yeah, there's some variations in behavior, obviously, but but if you're hiding your behavior, that's that's not a good thing. That's not that's not a sign that you're saved. That's not a sign that you know God. And and I think a lot of people think that they can have two lives and somehow. You know, they're fine with God, and that's not what God says. I mean, a lot of these things that he talks about is because he, he looks at the picture of us being his children. And everybody who has children, I mean, or when you, you can look back at when you were a child and you wanted to do things that your father didn't approve of, you would hide, you know, I mean, I, I remember the, the little Charles Churchill that went across the street to my friend's house behaved very differently than the little Charles Churchill that was in my dad's house because in my house, you couldn't get away with certain things. Over there, you could. And so there's this part of it where, I mean, when you see that sort of thing, that is exactly the sort of thing he's talking about is, are you are you my child always? Are you my right. child wherever you go? Are you behaving in this way? Because that's what the Holy Spirit does is he makes you my son. He makes you, he makes you a slave of righteousness. And do you see that in your life or are you pretending to be a slave of righteousness? And I think that when you, yeah. When you see the reality of who God is, you go, God can always see me. So it doesn't matter that much. When all you're doing is focusing on men, your behavior is changing because you don't, you don't see God as there. You don't see God as watching. You don't see God as participating. And so that's how you walk in darkness is that you think that God is not light and he can't see in the darkness. And there's another part of it where whenever, whenever you get the doctrine of assurance of salvation wrong, if you're not hiding, when you find sin in your life, you don't 
hide the fact that you found sin in your life. Mm-hmm. But if your point is is that you have to look like you're saved, if your if your faith has to be, if your faith has to be absolute, then also you have to hide anything that makes that would make any, that would give anyone any reason to question your salvation. Because in the end, the whole point is is to it becomes to make this facade, and so when we get the doctrine of assurance of salvation wrong, because in the end, if you do find sin, it doesn't immediately oh that you can't be the son of God. No. First John's really clear. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Right. And so it, it it causes there to be even deception just around the fact of whether you're saved by its nature whenever you get the doctrine of assurance of salvation. And you right. talk about finding sin, and it's really important to know that finding sin is not something that happens independent of the work of God in your life. Right. When you find sin in your life, it's because the Holy Spirit revealed and convicted you of that sin. If you're one of God's children, that's what is happening. And you should expect as you progress through the Christian life that things that you would measure as smaller sins, the Holy Spirit's going to be revealing those to you progressively over time. It's like, I'm going to deal with the Holy Spirit's thinking, I'm going to deal with these sins. And then when those are dealt with, we're going to deal with these sins and so on. But your response to that, what, what somebody outside or even you at this time are just going to say are small sins, you may actually feel a much greater weight about them mm-hmm. as you progress. So things that look like tiny sins are really the way that the Holy Spirit convicts you of them. As a mature Christian, they're going to feel very heavy to you. Right. And another verse that I think is worth reading is you know, 1 John 3, 2 through 7. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And so obviously... John wrote earlier that if you say you have no sin, so he's not talking about that you go, Christians never sin, that we're made pure as driven snow. But what he is saying is that everyone who is a Christian, they don't practice sin. They don't try to figure out how they can get better at sinning. Instead, they figure out how they can get better at righteousness and doing what God commands, which obviously part of that ties back to First or First Peter 2, where it's talking about you need to know his word and desire his word so that you can grow thereby. Because that's how you practice righteousness is you know what God commands. But it's not this passive thing. And I think there's a lot of people who go to church and they go, yeah, I'm fine with God. God saved me. God will cleanse me. God will do this. And John goes, wait a second. You're not understanding how it works here. Yes, it's God who sanctifies you. Yes, it's God who, who, who convicts you of your sin. He opens your eyes to it. He does all these things. So therefore, go practice righteousness, because everyone who is being sanctified will practice righteousness. And so you look even at, you know, in Hebrews 4 that we talked about, where it's like, don't you know that in him you are resting on his work and not your work? You're done with your work, so therefore go and work, is what it basically says. Because the idea is, is yes, when we trust in the work of God, we go, now I should practice righteousness because he's my Lord. Right. You do not leave your body to walk in the spirit. I mean, right. and it's this, I mean, and there's this, there's this Manichaeanism sort of idea that somehow that 
that you can be spiritual on Sunday, but then you can walk in the flesh the rest of the time. Right. And there's no problem. Or that the power of sin is so great that when Paul talks about this prison of flesh, that somehow you can't you can't walk in righteousness. And I mean, Scripture says do not quite be the deceived. opposite. Right, right. <laughs> Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. And so, if you're if your desire in life is not to practice righteousness, if your desire in life is not to obey God, don't deceive yourself. Your assurance is false. And this next verse in First John, I have it. We have it in here because, you know, we've been talking about assurance of salvation all through here, and that that you can have assurance of salvation. And we said this earlier that God does not promise and guarantee assurance of salvation to you. And even when you have assurance of salvation, it's not guaranteed that it will be permanent. That you there. And this is that God even uses the lack of assurance of salvation to cause growth in his in his children. And so, but I've heard this verse in 1 John 5.13 used over and over to say that we are guaranteed this. And, and that is not what this verse is saying. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that may you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And this verse in context is saying what we've been saying all along is that, like Paul said in the beginning, I run the race. I do these things. I don't beat the air. I, 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 you know, I bring my body into submission. I, I discipline myself. And there's this part of it where he's saying that as you do these things, you can know that you have eternal life. But it's not saying, and people will do this. It's like John three sixteen, where they'll they'll emphasize the whosoever as if it's like as if it can change the meaning of the verse. Yes that you may know that you have eternal life, but there is no guarantee that you will always know at every moment that you have eternal life. There will be times where you look and you say, am I deceiving myself? Am I fooling myself? Am I in the parable of the sower? Am I the person who is getting choked out by the cares of the world? Have I, do, I, do I see growth in the past, but now I'm starting to actually say I don't see growth anymore, and am I actually – have I – have I stopped following after Christ? This verse is at the end of the letter. After, at the end of the letter, this is John saying, here's how God works. Here's what it means to live the Christian life. Here's what it means to be in Christian community. After you get all that part, then you can say this. And this is a summary. It's a and summary. He's, and he's saying like really blunt things like he did there, right? Yep. Like we read before, where if you walk in darkness, you don't know God. If you don't practice righteousness, you don't know God. And I think there's 27 of them in 1 John before you get to this. So people want to skip and go here, and they don't want to read all those tests where he's saying, that's why I've told you over and over again, over and over and over again. I've said, you know, hey, if you do not love the brother who you see, you do not love God who you do not see. I mean, that's what 1 John is filled with. And people just want to look at this and say, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I believe in the name of the Son of God, so therefore I know I have eternal life. That's not what it's saying at all. It's saying, go do all those checks. If you're wondering if you have assurance, if your assurance is real, go study the book of First John. Right. And, and the whole, you know, if you want to study assurance of salvation, I mean, First John is really the place to go. And you also see that you know, there's a lot of times where he says things where – you know, he, he he puts two things next to each other that are at times almost uncontradictory. But and, and so you have something like this that might sound like he's saying, oh, you know, everyone who reads this book is a Christian. It has eternal life. Well, if you read in context, you see other verses that make it very clear that that's not his actual meaning. And I mean, and if you have someone in your life, if, you're, if you have a reason to doubt your salvation and someone goes to you and they say, 
that you may know that you have eternal life, and they just keep saying that over and over to you, at a minimum, you're dealing with someone who does not know the Word of God very well. And you may very well be dealing with someone else who is not saved, and they want to they want you to join with them in falsely assuring themselves of their salvation. And so, I mean, you just be really aware of this. Well, it's the poison of asp under their tongue. Right. Whether it's they're an asp or not, it's still the poison of right. asp under their tongue. And just recognize how deadly it is. Look for the person who gives you 27 tests for your salvation before they say this to you. Right. So we've talked about how to check for false assurance. Let's spend a little bit of time talking about, so how do you actually— but Just a little bit. A little bit of time. <laughs> God, how do you actually work towards true assurance? And one thing everybody needs to understand is that everybody's a slave, either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. It's And you can look and see where the slavery is in your life. And I think a lot of people don't want to look at it that way. But they are a slave of one or the other. That's what the scriptures teach, right? Romans 6, 17 and 18. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Everybody, first of all, has to accept they're a slave. And then ask the question honestly, who's my master? And when you ask that question honestly, then say, I'm going to work to make God my master. I'm going to treat him as my master. I'm going to not treat Satan as my master, as my father. I'm going to say, God is my father, so therefore I do it. And I think too often people just go, yeah, you know, I sin sometimes, I do righteous stuff. And they don't actually go, okay, so as a slave of righteousness, what should my life look like? And now let me pursue that like I fear hell. I mean, and I do think this verse is really important. I think that concept is important in multiple ways. There are sometimes people put too much emphasis on, like, a conversion experience. And I think they, they typically put way too much emphasis yeah, on it. But you can also go the other way, and you can make it to where – because in the end, there will be people who will say, you know, I want my children to grow up in a home where they never remember a time where they don't love God. And this verse – there's a problem with this because in the end, there is a shift. Even if you grow up in a church and you like the things of God, there is a difference between being a slave of sin and a slave of righteousness. And so Scripture does not guarantee us a conversion experience that is so big that it shines like – because in the end, Scripture is saying this is not – this is God does that is not how God has chosen to glorify himself. That And even Paul, who had – a conversion experience that was like the sun shining that was so bright that he was blinded by it said he still worked out his fear. It worked out his salvation with fear and trembling. But it is important, I mean, that this is a conversion. This is a shift. This is a real change, and it's 180 degrees into what you fundamentally serve and the reason why. And so you can have a child who grows up in a home where he never remembers not doing certain things. And he may even be saved early enough in life that he doesn't remember a time before that. But if he gets saved at a certain point in life, there will be a shift. There will be a shift, and it will be noticeable, and it will be something that it shouldn't be turned into nothing. And I think that's in that balance. Scripture strikes that balance, and we shouldn't try to upset that. And you know, being a slave of sin versus a slave of righteousness— you know who you're obeying, 
And I think there's a lot of people who are in that situation. They were raised in the church. They go, oh, I knew God from when I was first born. I I was always faithful towards God. And the reality is they've just redefined what it means to be a slave of righteousness. They mean have some external piety. Well, that's not what it means. It means to be a slave of righteousness. It means to do what you're supposed to do when it's hard to do it, not you do what you're supposed to do when you're in a group of people that are all doing the same thing. It's being persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's about caring more about the name of God than the name of yourself. This is what it looks like. It is whose household are you serving? Who are you a slave of? Are you a slave of the world? Are you a slave of God? And these things... It's easy to redefine what it means, and we have to be really careful to go, so what does it really mean to be a slave of righteousness? And one of the basic things is you read something you don't want to do in the scriptures, and you go, I'm going to do it anyway. And that shows that you're a slave of righteousness. And if you go, well, I'm going to continue to pursue sin anyway, well, you should be afraid that you're a slave of sin. The, child, the, the man who said to this one son, do it, and he said, I'll do it, and he didn't do it. And the other, he said, I won't do it, and he did. The one obeyed his father. The one was a slave, was, was a servant, a slave of his father because he did what his father told him to do. And the other said he'd do it, but he, he could not make himself do it. And there's a part of it where, I mean, do you see that abiding sense of do you have the power to overcome sin in your life? Because it's kind of what Jonathan said earlier, right? When you wake up in the morning, do you say, today am I going to harden my heart, right? I mean, it's kind of the same thing in different words. Right. And this next one goes back to kind of it's kind of the – the opposite of where we were talking about lawlessness in a sense, but this is the positive side of, of actually cleansing yourself and cleansing yourself from all filthiness. Second Corinthians seven one. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so I mean there is this part of it where do you see yourself actually trying to cleanse yourself from sin? And Understand, this does not mean – I mean, I, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine before he, I believe, actually ended up realizing that I think that he was not saved and, and he made a profession of faith after this. But he was telling me what his life was like, and I was talking to him about these things. And he said, look, and I figured out what the Christian life is. It means you go out, you fall into sin, you get covered in sin, and then you come back in and God cleans you up again. And then he sends you out, and you go out and you fall into sin. And that is just the – that's what the Christian life is. And this verse says, no, that's not what this is. It's that – it's because in the end, his the picture he had was like the, the adult who never gets out of diapers, that you keep just soiling yourself and covering – and just sitting in your excrement. And the answer is, is no, you learn to not soil yourself, not just to not soil yourself, but to cleanse yourself. And to actually do those things that God says to bring cleanliness and to live a life that moves you towards cleanliness. And if you're cleansing yourself, you change. And part of having assurance of salvation is you should be able to look back in your Christian walk and see that you've changed. Yeah, well, earlier you like- <laughs> said don't look at the history, but you were just specifically pointing to the people who were saying look at your baptism. Right, and I'm saying you can look at a trajectory, which right. is a very different thing than looking just at your history. I'm saying look at where you are now compared to where you were as opposed to looking at something in the past to say this is what this is why I know I'm saved. We should be looking back and saying if we're cleansing ourselves, we'll be cleaner now than we were before. And if we're not cleansing ourselves, we can pretend like we were cleansing ourselves all we want, 
But if you're still as filthy, you haven't been cleansing yourself. So like with all these verses, the problem is that the person who is assured of their salvation when they aren't saved, they always take them and twist them so that they feel like they should have assurance of salvation. And the reality is, if you don't look different, God says he who began a good work and you will make, conform you to the image of Christ. He will change you. He will cleanse you. And yes, we'll have seasons where they aren't going as well because sometimes that's how you clean somebody is that you actually, they get dirtier before they get cleansed. But they should be able to look back and see a pattern. If they look back and all they see is they're still on milk, then you're you're back to Hebrews 5 where the writer of Hebrews is going, really, what what makes you think you know God? You don't want to know more about God. You don't want to change. You don't want to you don't want to grow up. Why do you think you know God? The way to have assurance of salvation that you know God is that you actually try to cleanse yourself up. You actually try to turn from sin. You actually try to figure out what sins you have in your life and do something about it. And it's not a checkbox. It's not something right. where you say, "Oh yeah, I've cleansed myself. I'm done with that." Because then you have to go back to First John that says, "If we say we have no sin." And you have to run the race with endurance, like Paul wrote, right? I mean, it's the so same idea. So you can't idea. say, I'm cleaner. I mean, you can actually say, okay, I'm making progress. And then you just have to commit to, all right, I'm going to do a reevaluation at some future point and see, am I cleaner then than I am future now? Future point, like the next morning when you get up and you say, where have and, I heard my heart and today? it never <laughs> stops, you know? Right. And it's also not just as simple as a trajectory either, because, you know, you can't have a trajectory that just comes from getting older. It just comes from being around Christians. You, you just you know peer pressure. So you know the, a positive trajectory in terms of your behavior is not you know a, a simple easy test either. And you know Galatians five. I mean, we can be cleansing in a certain area, and we can be look and say, oh, I'm doing righteous in a certain area. And then Paul writes in Galatians five, nineteen through twenty four. Now the works of the flesh are evident which are adultery, fornication, you know, nobody has problems with that, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of rash, wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. All of a sudden, he's adding a lot of things in there that we might go, look, I'm cleansed in all this area. I've right. dealt with my lust but yet I have selfish ambitions. I've dealt with my lust, but yet I have outbursts of wrath. And Paul's saying, the works of the flesh are evident, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. When, when you look at it, I think one of the things that, that really shakes assurance of salvation is that they go, I have a besetting sin. And they might go, look, I'm a, I do all this, and I'm a, look at how I'm a servant for the church. I'm a slave of righteousness. Look at how I've cleansed this area and this area and this area. But in the end, they have an area that they go, yeah, but I'm just an angry man. Well, I mean, Paul's going, you shouldn't have assurance of salvation then. If you can't control your temper, don't think you have, you shouldn't have assurance of salvation. The works of the flesh are evident. And it's not like you can just go, well, I see a general moving forward. It's that the flesh isn't controlling your life. And when the flesh is controlling your life, Paul's going, yeah, you understand. You, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. 
And I think we make it way too cheap and way too easy. And so a lot of these things, you can look and you can go, oh, I'm serving the Lord in this way, and I'm doing this, and I'm cleansing this, and I've look at all this sin that I've turned from, and like, I forget who it was, maybe Joshua that says, you know, some of this stuff you just age out on, and you don't have the same lust of the flesh like you did when you were a youth, and you go, look, I've, I've overcome lust of the flesh, but yet you still have outbursts of wrath. Sorry, that doesn't work. We need to be looking and saying, do I look like I'm a slave of the flesh? Do I look like I'm controlled by my flesh? Just because I have selfish ambition, that's testimony that you're controlled by your flesh. And a loss of it, like you said, in those, I mean, there can be circumstances where you look at yourself and you should be able to go, I know I'm not a, I'm not a Christian. But there can be situations where you don't have assurance of salvation. And that, and like you said, that is where God has you for this moment. And the answer will be is do you go, forget this. This doesn't matter. And you just, you, you continue in your sin and you don't care about it because you're not willing to deal with it? Or do you go, God has me in this season, and God takes you through it, and coming out of it, God helps you end up dealing with that sin. And so, there, I mean, it, it, it's important to just not go, there's this immediate, and there can be cases where, depending on the sin, you should know. Well, and that's, I mean, what Paul's writing is more blunt, but what's an right. outburst of wrath? Is that you lose your temper once, or is that that's practice, your pattern? Right? He's right. Saying it is specifically practice, and that is... And so, but... I mean, Paul's going, you can tell whether you're controlled by the flesh or not. Right. And what I hear a lot of people go is they go, oh, yeah, I, I'm walking after God. Look at my life. I've got all these things that God has clearly cleansed me of, but I have this one besetting sin. And they use that as this idea, well, I get one, one pass. And that's not what Paul is writing in Galatians at all. He goes – if you're a slave of the flesh in one area, you're a slave of the flesh. And another thing related to how to work towards having assurance of salvation is that you don't you don't trust yourself. You don't fundamentally go, I know myself completely. And and that's Jeremiah seventeen nine, which we referred to before. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? While those who are saved do have a new heart, there is this part of it where God. I mean, and, and, and we know God knows it, right? And God talks about that, the spirit, you know, there's that he gives us the spirit and the spirit of man by which a man can know himself and things like that. And we talked about scripture, scripture can allow us to know ourselves. But there's this part of it where we've seen the verse where it said, the persons now who stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, will enter in. They'll, I mean, and a lot of times we make those people into monsters. And that's not what the verse is saying. The verse is saying is the person is there and they're saying in a, in a, but in a sincere way, this is what my faith is in, and I've done these things. And God's saying, you could be this person. This can be you. This, not, not, that, not that every single thing you've done is, it looks like garbage, but that it, some of the things you've done, they look good. You can argue to yourself that they look good. And this is why we have to be careful not to trust ourselves, because it's so easy to deceive ourselves. And I would look at the Matthew 7 passage, right, where people are going, but we healed in your name, we prophesy in your name, we cast out demons in your name. I mean, when you look at people going into the presence of God, they fall down in terror, right? I mean, that's, that's what it looks like. That's the picture, right? Even angels, they fall down in terror. So when you think of them coming before the judgment seat of Christ, you should not think that there's any bravado there, right? It's that they sincerely believe they sincerely believe that they were doing it to serve God. 
They sincerely believed that they were doing it to bring honor to God, standing before Christ. Because he is the truth, and they at that point they will know that he knows all things, because when we see him, we will know we will know ourselves as we are now known. And so there's this this revelation to them, and they're still going, but 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 God, God, I did this for you. Right. That's how desperately wicked the heart is, and that's how deceptive it can be that they can stand before God and go, I know I did this for you when they didn't. And so when we think about it, it's very easy for us to look inwards to say, okay, so where am I? And we're supposed to remember the heart is deceitfully wicked. But what James teaches is something different, right? In James 2, 17 through 18. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is talking about showing it to somebody else, but I would argue this is how we also see our faith, is that we should, if, if we know that we're deceiving God, if we know we're seeking after the flesh, if we know all these things, then this doesn't matter. But we should be able to see our works for the kingdom, and that is how we see our faith. We don't see our faith by looking at our heart. We see our faith by how God has used us. Because Ephesians 2 says, right, we're new creatures in Christ Jesus created for good works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So if we are new creatures, we can then see the good works that he prepared for us to walk in, and by that, know that we're new creatures. We don't know we're new creatures just by looking inward because the heart is deceitfully wicked. We look and we say, how has God used me? How is God changing me? How is God causing his kingdom to be advanced? Because everybody that's worthy of him dies to themselves, picks up their cross, and follows after him, which means starts to serve him rather than serving themselves. So we should be able to look. And I think there's a lot of people in church that they go to church for themselves. And sorry, that's not the picture of salvation. That's just not. You don't become a slave of sin, and then you become a free agent that you do everything to serve yourself. No, that's called a slave of sin. You become a slave of righteousness. You become a slave of God, you become a bondservant of Jesus Christ, as Paul calls himself, so that you should be able to see how you affected the world. The parable of the sower, we didn't talk about the parable of the sower, but the parable of the sower where some seed falls on on the road, it gets snatched up, and then some falls on shallow earth, the sun comes out, scorches it, and that's a picture of persecution, and you pres- preserve through persecution. And then, you know, there's some that fell among the weeds. The weeds grow up and they choke it out because of the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And then there's the, the other seed that falls on ground and produces 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. If you can't see production for the kingdom of God, then don't have assurance of salvation. But the right response there is go do something for the kingdom of God instead of serving yourself because God didn't save you to serve yourself. It, that's not sufficient, but it absolutely is necessary. The person who's preaching a true gospel from a false heart can do all kinds of good work for the kingdom of God and still be very far from God. That's no proof that you're with God. But that is a, <laughs> it's, it's, it's something if, that you should be able you, to see. If you don't have works with your faith, you don't have faith. Right. That's what James is saying. But you can also have your works that aren't a product of faith. But if you don't have works, you don't have faith. I think if you look through this, through the entire thing, we started off with Paul talking about how even Paul had to do these things. And we kind of said at the beginning that Paul wasn't saying that there's no way you can have any knowledge of your salvation. 
there's no way you can have any assurance. But if you've looked as you walked, if we, if we went through here, there's no silver bullet. I mean, there's, you know, we'll say, you know, you need to see this in your life. But just because you see this doesn't mean, you know, I mean, as you kind of went through, you heard each one. And the answer is, is you can't game the system. You can't, you can't trick, you can't fake things. You can't pretend things. In the end, God is the one who works out salvation. And so what we're doing is we're looking and going, is what I see in my life, is this the work of God? And am I doing that? And God tells you, here's different ways you can do that. But in the end, I mean, there is no way, there is no magic method there. And if and if that's your thought, that should worry you a little bit, because in the end, the one who actually trusts in God, he's not he's not scared with the fact that God may that God may withhold assurance of salvation from him because his trust is in God. If you're aiming for assurance of salvation, like trying to earn a merit badge you're never going to be satisfied and you're never actually going to have assurance of salvation like you want. Or you'll find a way to fool yourself, right? Or, or you'll, or you'll fool yourself and, and you'll get your merit badge and you're, but, but if your conscience is not seared, it's still never going to be satisfying. You're still going to be wrestling internally with, do I really have assurance of salvation? On the other hand, if you say, Hey, this is a process that I'm committed to for the rest of my life until heaven, then that's the only way that you're going to get assurance of salvation. We spent a lot of time and started with the verse that work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is very serious that we should be making sure that we're saved. You don't want to go to hell. It is a horrific place beyond anything that any man can imagine. And yet we treat it as flippantly. Don't treat it as flippantly in your life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is about eternity. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.